Straight from carving the turkey to corporate carve-outs, we kickstart 2020 by looking at a more complex end of the buyout market. We'll talk all things spin-off, from pan-European numbers to opportunities in the UK and the finer points of transitional services agreements. We'll find out if one corporate's disposal can indeed be private equity's treasure. In this latest episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you all. I hope you've had a relaxing break after the mad rush of Q4. It's great to be back uh, for this new season of the podcast. For the first episode of 2020, we're actually continuing on a bit of a theme that, that we started last time uh, when we looked at increased tech private activity across Europe. So still on that theme of the road less traveled uh, when it comes to buyout sourcing, we thought it'd be quite interesting to turn our sights on corporate carve-outs. By carve-outs, um, which we'll use kind of throughout the podcast, uh, will mean both the, the spin-off of uh, sub- whole subsidiaries of, of larger groups, but also the, the actual technical carving out of uh, divisions um, within, within, within groups that do require setting up new businesses uh, Obviously, very different level of complexity involved there, which we'll come back on as well. Uh, but we thought it best not to muddy the picture up too much, especially when it comes to the stats. Anyway, it is my pleasure to be joined today by Head of Research, Julian Longhurst. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've also got uh, Francesca Veronesi, reporter, joining us on the panel. Hi, Greg. It's great to be back. And we've got also our uh, other reporter, Catherine Hidalgo, joining. Thanks for having me, Greg. Uh, we've, you've all kind of looked into that topic in, in vi- various ways, uh, whether across kind of research and, and more kind of feature work uh, over the past few weeks. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting your insight on that. We'll also hear from uh, Tristan, uh, Tristan Nagler from Aurelius Opportunities, uh, which has a certain amount of experience with that type of deal in, uh, in our external interview a bit later on. But first, let me turn to you, Jules. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview on how prevalent PE-backed carve-outs uh, were last year in Europe? Sure. I mean, just looking at the stats, in raw number terms, the volume of carve-outs has certainly risen in the last couple of years. If you look at the average number of uh, corporate spin-offs between 2010 and 2018, it comes out at around 115 a year. Uh, in 2019, however, it's, al- it's already uh, up to 145, and these are preliminary figures. I expect them to, to grow a little bit further as, um, as we, as we uh, go into, into January. Um, as a proportion, the picture is slightly different. So if you look at carve-outs as a proportion of the whole market, if you look at the 2010 to 2018 average, they, were, they represented around 15% of all uh, private equity-backed buyouts. In 2019, it's actually down at 13.5%. But that's kind of clearly indicative of a market uh, that has been much more active in, um, in, in, in overall volume terms in the last couple of years. We're seeing records uh, followed by records. If you look from a value perspective, um, 2019 has seen, uh, again, preliminary figures, has seen 42 billion euros worth of, of corporate spin-offs. Um, that compares with 52.5 billion in 2018. But if you look before that, the annual average between 2010 and 2017 was around 20 billion. So we're, we're in kind of much higher higher brackets now. And we've had massive deals as well uh, last year in 2019. Yeah, I mean, this is, as, as, as always is the case with, with our buyout stats, a, f- a few huge deals will always make a big difference to the overall picture. Okay. Uh, 
any market segment where they tend to be a little bit more prevalent or they were a little bit more prevalent in 2019 at least? Yeah, I mean, I think I think by the very nature of corporate spin-offs, I think it's quite often looking at corporates that are, are getting rid of non-core subsidiaries. So it actually stands to reason that they tend to be the mid-size and the smaller ones that you see. Um, certainly in 2018, sorry, 2019, the... Um, Deals, corporate, corporate spin-offs in the 50 to 250 million bracket are, is by far the most active area. Um, so, you know, that's what I would expect to see. You do see some smaller ones and you see lots of um, sort of 25 to 50 million ones as well. Um, but that's, that's what you would expect, I think, from this type of deal. Excellent. Thank you, Jules. And Fran, you actually uh, look into that trend uh, a little bit more closely for, for one of your upcoming pieces. Um, including sort of it started out as looking at one of uh, Aurelius's surveys around kind of carbon activity. Um, what, what was the sort of the, the highlights from that and, and the consensus among the, the, the other people that you spoke to for the piece? Um, yeah, sure. So according to um, the survey, the biggest catalyst for divesting, um, well, 63% of respondents, the need to focus on core uh, business areas. For 14%, uh, the need to free up capital. And for 9%, the businesses would receive unsolicited approaches um, from potential buyers. So this is a kind of a, a overview of three reasons why. So basically the, the portfolio management almost aspect is quite prevalent isn't it yes it's super prevalent um basically what um you know several um you know surveys and reports are saying is that um divestments are no longer motivated by um the fact that a division is underperforming so there's been a a huge shift in mentality basically businesses are, are are selling some divisions in order to foster core activities um, and you know this is this happens for different reasons. Uh, they might might want to uh, reduce their debt and free up capital. Um, they might want to um, you know they might have some divisions that are um, profitable, but um, they might not have those those kind of synergies um, that um, you know could enhance the core business. Or um, they, they, you know, might simply be less profitable than others, and and you know, therefore there there is a, a, an opportunity of selling them. And finally, the context is quite important. So, um, given a greater public market volatility in Europe, um, divestments are a great way, a great alternative to um, IPOs um, in order to obtain financing. And um, finally. Um, also, there's, there are new actors <laughs> involved in the sense that merchant banks have um, increasingly approached corporates uh, with suggestions about, um, you know, which divisions to buy and sell. So, um, you know, that's an extra stimulus. Thanks, Fran. Um, you mentioned the Aurelius survey. Um, as it happens, you spoke to partner Tristan Nagler for your piece, but you also spoke to him for the podcast. Um, so I think we'll cut to that interview now and then we'll be back, we'll be back in studio to pick up on a, a couple of points that he mentioned and maybe wrap up around uh, some extra stats as well, see what the picture looks like across Europe. So we'll be back right after this. So we're now going to talk to Tristan Nagler, the Managing Director of Aurelius, to have a special stake on corporate carve-outs. Tristan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the pod. Hi, Francesca. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I'm very pleased to uh, provide some input here. Brilliant. Now, the number of corporates looking to sell more of their assets was predicted to be higher in 2019, comparing to 2018, according to the survey conducted by Aurelius, published last year. So really, it looks like divestments are no longer motivated mostly by the fact that a division is underperforming. So Tristan, how come corporates are taking a different stance on this? Uh, I think, you know, at Aurelius, we've done a lot of carve-outs over the last sort of 15 years. So for us, 
you know, every year that we survey and we find that more and more people are becoming keen on carve outs is no surprise because we've we've been enjoying the um you know we've been enjoying that feature of the, the M and A market for many years. I think why you know why do we think it's a rising you know there's a rising trend and why you know why is that coming from the survey? Um, I think it's because um you know it's sort of a win win transaction. Um, you know when 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 there is a non core business uh, that's part of a larger corporate um, you know, it ultimately isn't a very satisfactory position for anyone, for the management of that business. Um, it's, it's not satisfactory. They don't get a fair allocation of resource and capital and time. And for the corporate owner, again, it's not very satisfactory. It's a non-core business. And so its performance is not that relevant uh, and, and it's probably not going to move the needle uh, for the corporate. And so once the decision is made to divest, um, you know, it, it can be very satisfactory. The corporate divests something that is non-core, has one less thing to worry about. Uh, recoups maybe some capital, um, doesn't get keep being asked by analysts what's going on with that non-core business. Um, you know, it's not at risk from uh, from activists. Um, you know, because it's been actually proactive. It's really proactively dealt with something. Um, and for the business itself, it's also very attractive because they're no longer a non-core business. They're, they're, they've been bought by somebody, somebody, uh, an organisation that presumably views them as, as really desirable and worthwhile and. Uh, a good place to deploy time and capital. So for the management, it's great, and, and thereby for the employees and suppliers and customers and the other stakeholders. And then for the buyer, some you know, some, an organisation like Aurelius, you know, a, a private equity group that likes buying non-core businesses. You know, we, we often find we've got a really compelling um, investment, uh, a, a business that's got a, um, an opportunity to start start anew um, under our ownership and support, and and really achieve potential that maybe hasn't been unleashed. So I think, for, you know, for all concerned, you know, uh, delivering a, a, a carve-out transaction is, is often, you know, very, very satisfactory all, all round. And therefore, you know, it's not so surprising that, it's, you know, there's a rising trend. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you more specifically about an opinion I've heard. Speaking with a source, they said um, corporates are actually behaving a little bit more like private equity owners in the sense that they review their portfolio businesses a lot more than um, they used to. And the, and they don't only look at the turnover generated, but also at the turn at the return on their capital investment. So basically, they are looking at the arbitrage possibilities in that division. Do you think that's true? Are corporates mimicking what a private equ- what private equity is doing? I, I, I do think you're. I think you're right. I think this is a very clear trend. I think business schools have been teaching, you know, all about portfolio. Um, I guess management and how you manage a portfolio of businesses and how you should scrutinise them strategically, you know, um, you know, very regularly, let's say annually, uh, during the business planning cycle. And you should, you know, you should categorise businesses. And there's been, you know, uh, long-standing trends of categorising businesses as cash cows and as, as uh, problem children and all these sorts of labels. So, so that's been, I think, established. But but I think you're right that um, private equity is a very very disciplined environment. Um, and you know, every time there's a fundraise, um, that creates the discipline because um, you know, in order to raise the next fund, you've got to have shown a, a very good track record. But actually, you know, every time you report as a private equity, you need to you're judged on your track record of, of how, I guess, how disciplined you've been in your in your approach. And, and therefore, there is a very strong rationing of capital, um, and and every decision you take, um, you know, across your portfolio is very closely scrutinised. Every decision to further fund. Every decision to do further M&A, every decision to divest is considered and evaluated. I think within corporate, the corporate world, you know, that it doesn't happen in, in quite the same way. You, you've got, you potentially have analysts who, who observe exactly what's going on. But, but as, a, as a corporate, you can report 
in, a, in you know, you don't need to report a business unit, exactly business unit by business unit or individual subsidiary by subsidiary. Often you, you sort of group businesses into divisions and you have a, um, you know, series of different divisions. And so you can mask underperformance and you can mask bad decision making. And, and I guess we have definitely seen a, a, blur, you know, a blend of people, people going from corporate into private equity uh, environments and, and private equity environments into corporate environments. And, and as such, I guess business practices are, are blending. And I guess best practice, which you know, private equity has been held up for its financial discipline and rigor, you know, maybe, maybe that best practice and that, sort of, um, that, that willingness to accept scrutiny has, has, has sort of followed into corporate, the corporate world. I see. Um, and if we look now at the perspective of the buyer, what are the challenges that a private equity firm would have in buying a particular division? Um, the typical problem is that having previously been part of a larger group, a divested business isn't structured to be operate on its own right. So it's highly integrated with its parent. Um, I was wondering what challenges have you encountered? And specifically, was there anything you weren't expecting? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think, I think you're right. You know, uh, the M&A market is very, very broad. There's lots of deals out there. And, you know, some, some are relatively straightforward to transact and can transact really very quickly when you're, for instance, uh, one general partner is, is, is selling a business and another general partner is buying it. Um, often that can be very, very smooth, efficient, and you can have a very, very quick M&A process. I think corporate carve-outs typically are more complex um, and, and often take more time. And I guess as a result, you know, we've, we've ended up really, really focusing on them because uh, I guess by focusing, we know exactly where to look, uh, the questions to ask, and, and I guess we can potentially transact them pretty quickly as a result. Um, you know, the things to focus on, as you, as you said yourself, uh, Francesca, um, you know, first of all, is, is the business is not standing alone. Um, it, it's operating within an infrastructure, with, uh, sitting within a large corporate environment, and, and therefore it doesn't have its own 100% capability. You know, if it's called a carve-out, it, it, you know, it tends to be something that needs to be carefully carved out. And, and I guess the most common areas of, of, um, uh, of the businesses being integrated is in areas like IT, um, and some of the back office services, um, you know, uh, HR, finance, you know, it's very rare, for instance, to have a corporately owned business, you know, division that has its own treasury function, let's say, cash, you know, its own cash management. Um, and so, you know, those, those are, I'd say, relatively sort of, you know, straightforward procedural things that you can manage a separation. You can create a lo- an own IT function, an own finance function, an own HR function. You know, that's, that's straightforward, um, but it takes time and, and, you know, experience. I think more challenging is when the business also, um, you know, lacks some of the more, um, some of the more important, the more business critical elements of it, the things that make it, um, I guess, what, what it is, you know, it's a source of competitive advantage. Often, you know, in most businesses, IT is a sort of an enabler, enables you to speak to your customers and invoice them and these sorts of things. Um, you know, but, 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 but generally, you're actually, the DNA of the business, the competitive advantage is, is in procurement, how you, how you buy. It might be in sourcing. It might be in, you know, the manufacturing process and it might be in the selling process. And many times those, those are also integrated. Um, so if you, if you go to a large, um, you buy business from a large FMCG group like a Unilever or an Nestle, um, you might well find that um, the, the, the route to market is selling a whole range of different products that they manufacture. So if you were to take out one of their manufacturing sites, you would, you would have to build your own sales force and that sales force would have to go into the market and sell just one product rather than a whole basket of FMCG products. So that would be an example of a, of a challenging carve-out to sort of build known sales capability. And then on the procurement side, again, what, what, you, what you're doing might be procuring from some other part of the, the selling group. Uh, we look at many investments, corporate investments, where um, actually the corporate supplies uh, the product that the, 
um, that the uh, uh, company actually uh, manufactures from. So you've got an ongoing you know, trading relationship. Uh, we, we have one of our British businesses is called Briar Chemicals, and Briar um, was, was originally part of Bayer Crop Sciences, the, um, the agrochemicals group. And, you know, it, it, it was heavily dependent, the business that we acquired was heavily dependent for uh, the supply. So the products that it manufactures was from, from um, its, its parent company, Supply. And so these, again, these are not, um, you know, by no means impossible to transact. They just need quite careful thought about what's the, what's the future trading relationship. Uh, because whenever you do a carve-out, you will always have transitional arrangements. So you'll have a TSA, a transitional service agreement, where for a transitional period of time, you're getting help and support. And that's typically in IT and HR and finance and other back office. But also, you might to some extent have an ongoing trading relationship. Um, and you need to enter into a long-term contract to, to work together. Um, and those can create you know, real challenges because ultimately these are former sister companies um, uh, or, or parent companies selling to, to one of its subsidiaries that need to be transformed into an ongoing appropriate third-party trading relationship, whether it's supply um, you know, or procurement or some other area. Absolutely. So I think that's all the time we have, unfortunately. Um, Tristan, thank you so much for coming. I'm delighted to have had you on the pod and I look forward to having you back soon. Thank you very much, Francesca. Thank you. So there was quite a lot of useful takeaways from uh, Tristan there. One of these was around opportunities in the UK market, which I think he mentioned uh, later on in that conversation uh, to you, Fran. Um, Kat, as our resident UK expert, uh, does that tie in with uh, situations that you've been looking at and what you've been hearing for people? Yeah, so certainly when you think about Brexit, um, so I was looking at the um, EY report on divestments, on corporate divestments, and a third of all divestments globally are triggered by geopolitical uncertainty or macroeconomic volatility. And obviously, we've got spades of that in the UK currently. Um, Hopefully less going forward, um, as seems to be the consensus. Um, Especially when you look at carve-outs from a sector perspective, you can see that Brexit is probably driving parents to sell. Um, So industrials accounted for almost half of all UK and Ireland carve-outs, which makes sense because they have complicated supply chains and definitely would be huge sufferers from a no-deal Brexit. So that makes total sense. Um, The financial services sector is also seeing quite a number of carve-outs. Currently, Investec is thinking about selling an asset management um, division. Uh, We've got a um, real estate investment trust on the chopping block. So that also shows that Brexit's driving carve-out opportunities in the financial services sector as well. What's the kind of overall picture like in uh, the UK right now? Well, it's um, a pretty healthy carve-out market. Um, especially coming off of um, almost like a 10-year decline in the number of carve-outs. We've had an uptick up to 35, and deal value has just skyrocketed in 2018, mainly due to um, Refinitiv, to the carve-out of Refinitiv, which was like 14 billion. 2018 deal value saw 20 billion. That was mainly due to um, the carve-out of Refinitiv, but 2019 saw a pretty high deal value as well of about 11 billion. Um, which was, um, if you discount 2018, which was obviously skewed by Refinitiv, um, the highest since 
the year 2001, which was um, about 11.5 billion. So um, the overall market has been really healthy. And there's a lot there's a lot of reasons why UK is such a healthy carve out market. But um, something that we certainly talked about um, as a team was that um, there's a highly intermediated market in the UK, there's a, a highly specialized group of advisors that have uh, really worked on carve outs, they know how to do it well. Um, and they're really driving that deal flow. So I think that explains a lot of it. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Um, thank you very much to uh, to my panel, to Fran. Thank you, Kat. Thank you, Jules. Uh, and thank you all for listening, of course. We will be back soon with a stacked panel to review investment and fundraising activity in 2019, our usual review preview uh, podcast. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast from. And we'll see you next time on the Unquote Private Equity Podcast.